Welcome back to season three. I'm your host, Michelle Beatty, professional development strategist. The conversation continues with returning guest, financial educator, Dallin Vanterpool. Welcome to the Career Tipper Podcast. Hey, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. I'm always glad to be here sharing with the awesome folks at Career Tipper. So please tell the listeners about yourself and the work that you do. Sure, absolutely. So I wear a couple of different hats, not surprising as most folks, just like you doing different things. So during the daytime, I work as an investment banker with a private bank here in Panama City, Panama. And we are, I spend a lot of time focusing right now on mutual funds and other types of funds, private equity, that kind of thing, but always trying to help high net worth clients manage their money, try to help them not lose it and grow it at the same time. So that's the kind of thing I'm doing during the daytime, learning those lessons from uh, high net worth clients who are doing different things. And then by nighttime, I'm working as a podcaster, just like you over on the Careers and the Cashflow podcast. And all that feeds into my wider goal here, working as a financial educator, distilling all the lessons and all the things that I'm picking up from my day job and other clients and that kind of stuff, distilling all the information down and trying to get it to the people that need it most. And during this episode, you're going to share financial wellness about how we should look at our employer basically as being no boss, only clients in your new book, which is awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So would you share with us the mindset behind no boss, only clients? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the impetus behind no boss, only clients is this. I realized that a lot, after a while that a lot of us have this concept of this traditional concept of where you have, you have your boss and then you're the employee. And it sets up this kind of power structure where you are so so much of a passive uh, participant in your career path. You're a passive participant in your income. You're a passive participant in everything that you're doing. You're just sitting there and you're taking instructions, right? Because you feel like you are you have to be in the situation. You don't have choices. You can't you can't raise a voice. You don't have much agency in what you're doing career-wise, income-wise, and that kind of thing. And it dawned on me that there's a way to shift this that can be extremely powerful. And that is by changing the idea, forgetting the idea that the person that is paying you money to do a job is your boss. Anybody that's paying you money to do a job, everybody that's in the stream of events, the path of things that gets you paid is not your boss. They are your client, right? They're your client. That seems like just a philosophical shift to some people. Some people might say, oh, that's just a little mind trick. But, you know, just, just stay with me here for a second. When you start thinking about it that way and saying this is not my boss, this is my client, it changes the power dynamic immediately. Why? Because now you have the power now to say how you want things to be done. And I'm not talking about marching into somebody's office all arrogant and cocky. No, that's not what we're talking about here. But we're talking, we are talking about taking a more active role in what you're trying to do. And saying, look, you don't have to stay at this client, right? I didn't say at this job. You don't have to stay with this client forever, right? You, you go in and you set the terms that you want to work on. You set the things that you want to accomplish. And you, it's, not a, it's not a one-sided conversation, but you're agreeing on the things that you want to get accomplished. And this is just like when you're working with any other client. They come in and they say, look, what is the problem that you have? And here is how I'm going to solve it. So you're getting paid 
not based on showing up, but you want to start getting paid here based on the value that you can provide. You want to start getting paid based on the problem that you are able to solve or the problems that you're able to solve. And that does some things, obviously, on the quote-unquote boss side or the client side because now they have to think, hmm, this person isn't stuck here. They could get rid of me and try to work with some other clients. But it also puts pressure on you, the quote-unquote, the former employee, right? It puts pressure on you as well because now you can't just slack off and say, well, I'm just going to show up here and scream, you know, scroll through Instagram all day and then hope to get paid. No, because this is your client. You, you came to serve your client. Right? And you're getting paid for results, you're getting paid for value. So your mind also has to shift into a value mindset where you're trying as best as you can, you're trying to make sure you deliver on what you're, you're trying to accomplish and you're solving problems that matter to the client. And that's the important part, solving problems that actually matter to the client. Because a lot of us come in and we're solving all kinds of things, but these are not the things that matter the most. And that again, impacts how, pe how much people are willing to pay us. So no boss, only clients walks through that mindset, and it takes the, takes the readers, takes you through uh, a, a process of first conditioning your mind to understand that concept, and then we move from just how to build up your career, and we end off here at the end of the climax, I should say, with how to actually start making more money. And that involves not necessarily quitting and becoming an entrepreneur like everybody might say on Instagram right now. I know that's in vogue. Everybody needs to become a hashtag entrepreneur, hashtag grind, hashtag no sleep. Yeah, I get that, but I think there's also a way to leverage our careers very strongly and also do some entrepreneurial or freelancing kind of things so we can get that income popping. Well, it's definitely a skill to navigate all of that, understanding the mindset, understanding the execution, and also how to think strategically yeah. to make that be a great addition that fuels our financial wellness, which you have talked about every time that you've been a guest on the podcast and yeah. you're on your third visit. So each time your game, your financial wellness game just continues to strengthen. And I think every time you're on this show, it's just always great added value, which is why I want to talk about generating income because each time it's like a whole nother nugget and we're navigating the pandemic and you've launched this book. And I just want to know, like you talk about the different strategies and there's one in there, there's like five strategies that you have that you discuss about developing income. And one of them just totally cracked me up and it's cows aren't always sexy. So I would love for you to share the why behind the different strategies. Why did you pick five? Why aren't cows always sexy and why we should just accept that truth? Absolutely. So that that one makes me laugh sometimes when I when I read it or when people ask questions about it. So you you're not the only one that's had a had a good chuckle there on that one. So the all cows aren't sexy bit comes from your listeners might be familiar with the old uh, Boston Consulting Group uh, growth <coughs> growth matrix where they have the four four quadrants and you throw different businesses or you throw different parts of a business into those four quadrants. One of them might be a star. So this is something that's really flashy. It's doing big things. It looks good on the social media. It's the it's the it's the rock star of your of your portfolio. Something else might be the dog in the group where it's just burning a lot of cash. It's not doing what it needs to do. It's it's in there but it's kind of run its course. It might be soon time to put it away. Then you have some things which are question marks, of course, which where you're not sure how to make it happen. You're not sure what it's doing in the portfolio. And then in that growth matrix, you also have a section what they, where they call the cow, the cash cow. You might have heard that expression before. And this is the business that is not necessarily the most sexy or the part of the business that's not necessarily the most sexy, 
But a lot of times, it's the part that's generating the most money or it's the part that's the most stable. It's the part that's least uh, volatile or least, least susceptible to changes in the market or changes to things. Now, building off of that, the issue we have here is that a lot of us get into thinking that our cash cow, right, our cow that we're going to build right now, the business we're going to launch, we think that it needs to be sexy. But when I look at my clients, and I, I draw a lot of experience from uh, not just serving clients, but studying these folks like books, like taking notes and really trying to have conversations with them, uh, not just about the transaction we're trying to complete, but about their wider business structure and how they got wealthy, and more importantly, how they stay wealthy, right? Notice I'm not saying rich. I'm talking about wealthy here. It's a slight distinction. Um, so I started talking with them, and I realized a lot of them, they're not necessarily only doing businesses that seem flashy. The businesses that, that they're doing that make money, they, they wouldn't look cool on Instagram. I mean, if they posted their bank account number, it would look cool. But the stuff they're doing is, is not necessarily flashy and cool and sexy. But we got to realize that we can start businesses and start building wealth with a part of, this is not the only thing that you have in your portfolio, but be aware that you could have a part of it that's not flashy, but it actually is making significant am amount of money. I heard the story once of a gentleman who had a business and I'll paraphrase it here. He was he makes uh, nuts and bolts and sprockets and that kind of stuff. Kind of a Jetson situation for you, uh, for you '80s babies. See, he makes nuts and bolts, but it's a specific kind of nuts and bolts that gets used very much in some specialized industries, so the airline industry, specialized machinery. And the guy is doing extremely well. And somebody said to him, "Man, like that has to be so boring. How do you wake up every day and become super passionate and excited about making nuts and bolts?" And the guy responded, "I'm not." He said, I don't, I mean, I, it's nuts and bolts, man. Like, it's, it's not something super sexy and cool. But if you saw the amount of money I'm making, that is very sexy and cool. The things I can do with the money from this quote-unquote boring cash cow are very sexy and cool. So, as I tell people, when you start thinking about, when you're brainstorming your ideas for the things you want to do, don't get drawn into the idea that you need to launch the next Instagram, the next Facebook. You need to be you know, building a rocket to go to the, the, to the moon or doing something. You need to build the next electric car. No, there's a lot of things that you can do to make money that don't seem as cool to your friends. So think about cash flow, right? Think about profit, not how are you going to explain this to your friends. I mean, simple things that we do all day, people don't realize that you can monetize these things. How do I know you can monetize the things that you all do all day? Because somebody's paying you to do these things all day. And I'm not even talking yet. I haven't even jumped into like your real specialized skills. I'm talking about sending email. I'm talking about reading. How many of us wish we had somebody that we could just have to proofread a document really quick? Or some content creator out there who needs someone to help. That I gave someone this example. I said, look, you know how many content creators out there, if you have someone that you see, some friend of yours that you see is trying to build an online brand as a thought leader or whatever it is, hey, look, offer to tag along with them to their events, offer to tag along with them to do different things. Maybe they can't afford a big fancy $1,000 photographer, but you could take your, your smartphone if it takes good pictures, you have a, you know iPhone or a Samsung or whatever your phones are, tag along with them and start documenting the behind the scenes of their process for them so they can have content to use on social media in different places. You can get paid. See all your friends with their horrible LinkedIn pictures. Hey, look, man, go to a, a, a stationery store or, or a, a fabric store. Get you a, a nice little backdrop. Get you one light off of Amazon for 10 to $30 from, from New or one of these brands. Take your smartphone and start making some money fixing these headshots. 
I got a good friend of mine named Alton Bertie, Berkeley School of Music grad, all this stuff, awesome musician, producer. The guy has now transformed himself into like a drone photographer. He he does he did some real estate photography for for my house recently. Is the guy a professional photographer? Nope. But he had an iPhone sitting around in his pocket and he monetized the heck out of it. Awesome. So yeah, all cows don't gotta be sexy. When generating income for ourselves, the ability to tell a story is vital. You yep. have to make it clear, concise, make it attractive. People want to hear it. And my listeners' top three age demographics is 28 to 34, 35 to 44, and 45 to 59. So since each demographic will be at different stages of their career, what are specific differentiating storytelling tips that they should keep in mind when promoting their skills to help position them to increase their salary um, for whatever reason, other opportunities, income opportunities, being able to be invited to have a seat at certain tables. What is your insight and advice for that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a great question because the, the story and the types of stories, stories we tell and the way we tell the story is obviously going to vary depending on which phase we're in there. So I'll, I'll roll with your, 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 your categories, your buckets, so to speak. So the young folks, the 28 to 34s, I won't say exactly which bucket I fall in. I'm somewhere in there between one and two. I think my soul is in like bucket number three up there with the, with the 45s. But anyway, <laughs> the young folks, the quote unquote young folks, as you come in and you're talking about a 28 to 34 year old person, the expectation here, as I'm interpreting it at least, is that this is not necessarily uh, your first job. You didn't just get out of college here. You, you, you've been in the mix a little bit. Now you're, tr you've you're starting to find your stride. You at least figured out, if you haven't figured out what you want to do, you're at least getting a sense of what you definitely do not want to be doing, right? So when you come in and you're telling your story and you're telling how you want to make things happen, what you're focusing on in this kind of younger-ish, I say younger because you're not, you're, not, you know, you're not a baby, but you're a younger in this section here, these definitions, is you have on your side time and innovation, right? You are on the pulse of what's happening. You might be aware of new technologies that are going on, and you might be picking up different things just from the types of content that you are consuming all the time. You might be more having more conversations. You might be in a more social part of your life where you're interacting with more people, so you're aware not just of what your, your general interests are, but you're aware of what other people are thinking about, the kinds of questions that they're answering. So you have innovation on your side, and you also have time because you may be, and this is obviously a slight gener general or great generalization here, but you may have more time uh, available than the person who's a little bit older in, in, in the different two categories here, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, not that you don't have things to do, not that you don't have a social life, you don't have families and that kind of stuff, but you may be a little bit more flexible with time and have few more, a few more commitments. So you can present yourself as somebody who can put more actual hours and time into making things happen. So that's a story you're pushing. Hey, I'm here, I have the energy, I can put in the work, and I have a good pulse for what's happening in the world. I had to jump to the next category here, 35 to, 35 to 44. I actually love this section, right? This is a good time. Anybody who's in this category, this is your time to become a millionaire, right? This is where you need to start thinking about your serious personal finance strategy between these ages here. Not necessarily that you, you, know, you might not get there by the time you hit 40 or 45 or whatever it is, but I've seen so many people who rock the career the right way. Uh, during this phase, and they're able to make serious money, build up those 401ks if you're in the U.S. I, I always tend to, I got to think in two ways, because when you say a 401k to somebody who's in, not in the U.S., we're like, 
we don't have any of that stuff, so whatever, <laughs> right? But you're building up those retirement plans, and you can do that kind of stuff. So in this section here, you're thinking about expertise and depth. Now, expertise because you've been doing this stuff since you were in that 24, 28 to 34 time, right? So you can say, look, I've seen how this stuff works. I've seen it go badly. I've seen it done well. I've seen the mistakes. We've worked through some different things. And you can help point out to someone who's in that younger age group and say, look, I hear you. Uh, we tried it that way before. I'm not saying we shouldn't try it again, but let's work together and try to understand like where things went wrong before so that now we can start improving on this. Let's bring your innovation, let's bring your energy, let's bring your ideas into me helping to avoid us repeating some of the same mistakes we did before. So you have your expertise and your depth at this point. Now, when you get to the, the, the third category, I almost said last category. I, wanted, I don't want to say last category. You're not, you're not, it's not your last time. But in the third category here, your 45 to 59s, what you have is the ability to demonstrate uh, to demonstrate range, right? You have the, the ability to, to demonstrate range, and you also have the ability to see trends. I was speaking with a gentleman named Dr. Vince Molinaro one time. He was, he was presenting at a conference here. He, he worked at one of the top human capital firms here uh, in, in the city. Uh, they're all over the world, but they have a branch here in the city. And he was talking, and he was talking a lot about leadership. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, well, how, how do how do you signal to management that you're ready for a leadership position? How do you graduate, so to speak, from being uh, line staff or a regular employee? How do you get into that, that you know, how do you jump from that $75,000 paycheck to the six-figure range? How do you get to that 120, 150, 200K range? What is it that you need to do? And one of the things that he said that stuck with me is that you have to do two things. You have to be able to demonstrate to the company that you can see trends, right? And you also have to be able to demonstrate that you can do your technical job, right? But you can also see the industry, right? You can do, you can see your company, you can see your role, you can see what's on your desk, but you can also see what's happening in the wider industry, so you can start taking advantage of, of different things that are happening. So, in this forty-five to fifty-nine area, you have the benefit of being having gone through that time of innovation section. You have the benefit of gone through the expertise and depth section. What you have now is the ability to bring those two things together and have that range to see trends. You've already seen when this was the hot new thing and then it faded after two years. You've already seen when people thought this was the perfect idea and it became successful. You've already seen when you had a, the company had a great idea, or you guys had a great idea, but you didn't act fast enough. You've seen what it, the, the, the pros and cons of being the first mover versus ha lagging back a little bit, Apple style, letting somebody else do it and then copy it and do it a little bit better. You've seen all those things, so you can serve as a guiding light to those folks who are coming in the, on the younger end, not just telling them how to do things, but showing them how they need to present these things to the different decision makers to actually get them done. If you want to avoid, if you want a quick way and an easy way to avoid the ageism and, and really show that you still have value, especially in, 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 in industries that tend to get branded as an ageist kind of thing, like technology areas, if you can show where you're able to help those younger folks know how to frame, present, and communicate those ideas to the real decision makers who may be a lot older than them, then you can start showing that range and, and, and showing some real value. So those are my three things there. Young folks, time and, time and innovation. In the middle section there, expertise and depth. And then the older folks here, you got to demonstrate that range and show that you can see the trends. Thank you, Dallin. Now for the nine to fivers, because some are 
in a re-strategy mode about their next career move for various reasons. Would you please share insight on salary negotiation versus income augmentation, along with understanding the money line? Because I perceive that they intertwine quite a bit. And I think that historically, I've known you to give great food for thought. And I would like for now more than ever, I think people might be really trying to understand how to get close to the money line. So I would yeah. love for you to share some insight on that. Absolutely. So a, a year or two ago, I wrote a blog post that got a lot of attention uh, from, from, from a couple of different people, and it was called The Money Line. It's a two-part blog post, and this made it into the book here in a different format, slightly more detailed in the book. Uh, but The Money Line, I'll start there, and then we jump backwards here to our savvy negotiation and, negotiation and income augmentation. The Money Line is simply this. In any organization, any company, any business, there is a proverbial uh, manufacturing or, 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 or assembly line going down. There's a river of money running through it. Right? There's a river of money. And all the different things the company is doing, these things are on the left and right of the money line. You know, there's, there's people answering the phone. There's somebody cleaning the floors. There's somebody manufacturing one part of something. There's somebody making calls to get different supplies in. These are all things that are happening. But they're not all in the same proximity to the money line. And what happens is the folks who are on the money line, the closer you get to that money line being the things that are absolutely mission critical to doing one of these three things, to generating money, saving money, or saving time, those folks are going to get paid more money. It's just like in the movies, right? The supporting actor is not going to get the same paycheck as the stars. The person who they know can sell the movie by post, like I saw Will Smith recently, he posted the trailer for as a King Richard, the, the Serena and, and Venus Williams dad thing. The person who, like a guy like Will Smith who can post that on Instagram and all of a sudden get millions and millions of views pub, pub, you know, promoting the movie, he's going to get paid more than the person who's a great actor, but you don't have the ability to push that kind of stuff and promote the, the, promote the show. Right? So he's closer on the money line than the person who's maybe just holding the camera. I mean, you might be the greatest camera guy ever. Anyway, you, you're amazing, but you're not as close to the money line as Will Smith. Right? So we got to start thinking about companies that way and realizing that we can't spend all of our time being frustrated about how much we're getting paid and not also think about, wait a minute, like, is, is the job I'm doing even really worth as much as I say that I want, and I'm talking about the job. This is not about your personal worth here. I'm talking, this is this is the conversation that happens, right? For those of you who never made it into the management level of things when these decisions are being made, this is how the conversation really happens. It's not really about you. It's about what is this job worth? How much money is this generating? Have you ever stopped and thought about the amount of money that you actually generate for the company, for your client, and then compare that to your salary. Like, are you are you actually generating a hundred thousand dollars? Are you generating two hundred thousand dollars so where they can pay your salary and still make a profit, right? So you want to get on that money line. And if you want more details on it, of course, you can check the blog post um, on my blog over at dallinv.com/blog, or you can get the book and you'll see it in there as well. So that's the money line, and we want to work on getting ourselves closer to that money line if the goal is that you want to get paid more. Now. That's not everybody. Maybe you don't care to get paid. Maybe you don't care to get and do all this extra work. Because the money line, yes, it comes with the benefits, but it also comes with the, in, the increased scrutiny, right? Because you're in the spotlight now. So when you win big, you win big. When you fail big, you fail even bigger. It's going to get noticed. So you have to be willing to put up with that kind of pressure. Now, on the salary negotiation versus income augmentation side, I'll say a couple of brief things about it. 
salary negotiation, you know, I'll skip over the typical stuff that people always hear. You know, go in there and do this and do that and the other. I think we've all heard some of the generic information. Uh, one thing I think that gets glossed over a lot of time is a lot of times is the amount of time that this takes. When I hear people talk about salary negotiation, it almost seems like they think it's a two-week process, like it's a one-month process. It's, they think it's a couple of email exchanges. They think it's somebody offering you 50K and you go, nope, I went to glassdoor.com and I'm asking for 51. Like, no, it's not, <laughs> that's not how it happens in the real world. Salary negotiation is an ongoing process. This can take up to a year, right? This is about you again with this no boss, only clients mindset, saying to your client, all right, what are the objectives? All right. If this, then that, right? What would have to be true? This is a question you're, you're, you're discussing here with the client. What would have to be true for me to get paid $100,000? What would have to be true for you to pay me $250,000? What are the things that need to happen? What are the problems that needs to get solved? What are the income targets that need to get hit? And then also, what are the resources that you're prepared to make available for me to get these things done. That's an important part because a lot of people sign up and say they don't realize they're being set up to fail. All right, go, make it happen. But then halfway through, six months down the road, they realize, well, you haven't given me all the support that I need to make it happen, right? So that's, this is a salary negotiation conversation, and that happens at the beginning. Then there are checkpoints along the way. Hey, how are we doing here? Are we good? Are we making progress on this? Are we still on track? Do we need to make any shifts to this? And then possibly six months to a year later, then you come back and say, hey, I have my receipts. This is what you said needed to be true. It's true now. Show me the money. This is how salary negotiation actually happens. Assuming you're talking about, you know, we're not talking about getting a dollar and fifty cent per hour range. I'm talking about big numbers here. You want a twenty thousand, thirty, fifty, one hundred thousand dollar raise. This is how it happens in the real corporate world. You plan for what you, you agree with your client on what needs to get done. Then you do it and you bring your receipts and then you get paid. So that's the salary negotiation side of it. And there's more tips on that in the book, of course. But on the income augmentation side, this is where I, I have to confess that I've spent the lion's share of my time. I, I don't know if it's a pride thing, Michelle, but I, I just have issues feeling like I'm begging for, uh, for someone to value what I'm doing or, or to, not just value, for someone to dollar value what I'm doing. I, like, I told my wife, like, I actually hate requesting vacation. Like, it eats at my soul. I hate, I hate the concept that I'm actually asking someone permission to live life. It, it, it bothers me. Right? So a lot of times for me, I would run the numbers, and instead of doing uh, spending as much time on the salary negotiation side, I spend it on the income augmentation side. Somebody says, "What is income augmentation?" I'm doing it like a preacher, where you ask the question and then you say it right after. What is the what is income augmentation? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> so, income augmentation has to do now with you saying, "Look, I have my base salary, like uh, base salary from your 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 main your main client." But then you're saying, look, what are other things I can do outside that nine to five? And of course, we're using 95 here as a generic term. You're nine to whatever. Outside your main job, what are other things you can do to start generating income? And I think what scares a lot of people sometimes is that they think they have to make this sudden jump into becoming an entrepreneur. I think the other funny thing is that a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people think they're actually entrepreneurs, but they're really just glorified freelancers. More on that in the book. All right. But you can do, there's a middle ground here that you can ease your way into where it's not a, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. You can keep your job and you can start doing freelance-ish kind of things. I'll give you an example. At one point when I was heavily into music, I was making more freelancing doing music on, uh, at nights than I was making from my actual day job, right? So I didn't bother asking for a salary to get paid more, to spend more time in an office doing something that I didn't really love. I said, okay, 
we'll do this little nine to five things. So we got that little steady income coming in. But at night, oh, we're about to transform. We're about to put on that red cape, the S on the chest. We're going out to a private yacht in the middle of the ocean, and we're going to rock out and play music on a private island for, you know, for billionaire clients, and we're going to get paid. And I realized after a while that, wait, if I, I'm doing this four nights, if I did this four nights a month, I match my actual day job salary that takes 30 days. And that's where you start thinking about income augmentation. And there are other things that I talk about in the book as well in terms of non-cash compensation, things that folks don't think about. So, for example, if you know you just wrote a book and you're a speaker or the different things that you want to do, maybe an extra two or three vacation days is worth more that, to you than an extra $500 a month. Because with that extra, those extra vacation days, you could go out and get paid $1,000, $25,000, whatever it is, to start uh, to do your speaking jobs versus saying, oh, I want an extra $500 a month. Maybe you know to start start talking about getting stock options in the company, right? And start getting some equity in the company versus just trying to get paid. Now this is where high level executives play. This is why you see when they get fired or whatever it is. Oh, sorry, my options are already vested, so you can fire me if you want to, but I'm exercising that right now, and I want to buy that stock that's on sale for five hundred dollars. I'll buy that. Thank you very much. At one hundred, why? Because I was smart. And I listened to Michelle and Dallin here on Curative and I got those stock options. So those are the kind of things we're talking about when we talk about income augmentation. And there's a lot more stuff about that inside No Boss, Only Clients. Dallin, when you go back, when you talked about in the, for the nine to fives and corporate, and you say they, they bring their receipts, will you share what those receipts look like? A absolutely, absolutely. And one of the persons that really, uh, I think, put me onto this and illuminated it was a young lady by the name of Jamila Abson. Jamila Abson is, uh, she's an old friend of mine. She worked with me back when I was working at Ernst & Young, now EY, back in the day. Started out as an auditor and she was obviously several years ahead of me, but I always looked up to her as this like amazing professional, super sharp, super smart, always dressed well, always knew her stuff, well respected. And she eventually now went and became one of the youngest partners, if not the youngest partner a few years ago, to join the partnership at the firm uh, in their in their New York office. I think she moved to a different place, but she was on my podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, if you go to the podcast and look her up, I think you should definitely listen to the episode if you haven't listened to anything else. And she talked about how she was able to make that climb so quickly and how she encourages and coaches other people to do it. And she said, you gotta bring the receipts. And she talked about this where we get in a habit of working really hard but we don't document, right? We don't document the things that we, we've accomplished. So for example, easy one, low-lying fruit, uh, getting feedback when you do something very well, right? You can do something very well and somebody says, hey, hey, good job, man, awesome. Hey, you know, I just wanna get some feedback on that to make sure, I'm talking about receipts here, like get them to put it in an email. If anything you think I could do better, could you just drop me a couple of points on things that went well and things that didn't go well? Person might not have time to do an email. Hey, can we talk real quick? All right, great, you have that conversation, don't stop there. You have that quick five minute conversation with the feedback, you send them an email, say, hey, just so I'm clear what we talked about, I, these are the things I need to work on, these are the things that went extremely well according to, according to your account of what happened, Thanks so much for taking the time. Boom. Receipt. Right? And also, like I said before, you're playing the what would have to be true conversation. So you want to be able to walk into a meeting not just saying that you want more money or you want whatever to happen. You want to be able to say, here is the issue you said we had. Here is how I contributed to solving that. Right? In the book, we give an example of, of how, you, how you actually put this together. You say, look, especially if you're writing it in a resume or you're, you're having a, a, 
a conversation about getting a, a new client or whatever it is, you got to be able to com- you, you got to be able to have the conversation in terms of when I came, we were at X. This is the metric. We were at X. By doing A, B, and C, I moved the needle to here. These are the, this is the sentence structure you got to get in the habit of having, right? And it's not just because you want to toot your own horn, but a lot of times this is the this is the inside the secret here. A lot of times the person that you're talking to they're not the final decision maker. Your boss, it's, a very, it's very common that you know, your boss or your main client, the person you're talking to, your contact at the company, they may not feel like letting you know that they don't have the final say. Right? They have to go and now convince a board or some other, category, other group of persons to pull the money from different budgets to make your money happen. So what you want to do is give them the ammunition. Give them easy things to show. Give them, put the words in their mouth that sound good to boards and decision makers. Hey. When Michelle came in, you know, our turnover time, our turnover was at X percent, but she did A, B, and C. Wait, let me check the cue card that she gave me. Yeah, she did A, B, and C, and now we're here. Right? You got to give them the cheat sheet that they need to justify in their minds and to other people uh, making the things happen that you want to see happen. So that's what I'm talking about when I say bring the receipts. But do you classify that person as your sponsor? It depends. So you, you got sponsors uh, and then you have mentors, right? So sponsors in this case, uh, and this is a category, this is a, a classification we make in the, in the book as well, talking about peers, the persons who you, you know, you know and you, they're on your level. Then you have the mentors, the person you go to for advice every now and then. And then the sponsors are folks who you may not actually know, but they just need to be, maybe you met them once or twice, but they need to be more familiar with your work than they are familiar with you. They don't need to be your BFF, right? But this person needs to have heard of your work. When your name pops up in a meeting, they need to be like, hey, yes, this is not the first. I've been hearing good things about this person, and I'm willing to go to bat for this person. Maybe, again, it is someone that you've built somewhat of a relationship with, and you can say, hey, you know, long term, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, if it ever comes down to a decision, I really appreciate your support and giving me the opportunity to show my stuff that kind of stuff is what the sponsor is doing. And again, this is not your mentor, this is not your BFF, it's not somebody you're talking to all the time. This may be somebody who's several levels ahead of you, so much so that your success is in no way a threat to what they're trying to accomplish as well. They actually want you to become successful because your success is putting more money in the pot for them as well. So that, yeah, that person could be considered a sponsor. Now, when it comes to savings and investing, one thing you're always referring to, you have to understand or unlock anything that might be in your way. So you can master the skill of financial wellness. You can master the skill of being efficient at what you do, which you've talked about throughout this entire interview. But in your book, No Boss, Only Clients, you ask the reader 20 questions that challenge their their approach to money that helps them confirm a very solid baseline that can clarify their perspective about savings and investments. Why did you aim or what do you aim for the reader to unlock, to take away from this activity? Because they might look like, oh, these are just 20 questions, whatever. But there is a method to, there's a science to it. Will you just share more insight on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we won't go through all the different 20 questions here. But what I realized a lot of times is when when a client comes in, and this is investment banking world now. So when a client comes in and they want to open an account or they want to do, whether it's an existing or a new client, they want to make a financial move. If you have a good advisor who's working with you, before they jump in and just start throwing ideas at you, we usually step back and we ask a couple of different questions, especially if it's someone we don't know. Uh, One of the things we might ask is, what's your investment horizon? Like, you say you want to become a millionaire, you want a $500,000, but yeah, but how fast? Like, we're talking like in the next five years, seven years? Like, why are you investing? Is this for 
just to buy a new car. You, you got you just you, your kids were just born, so you need me to figure out how much money you need to put in so it grows in the next eighteen years to cover the inflation adjusted rate of their college to it. Like, what are we trying to do? So you try to get a radar on what people are thinking about here and what they're really trying to accomplish. With those 20 questions, what it's getting at is this. So many of us don't realize, unless you have friends that are outside the scope of what you normally do or where you grew up, you don't realize that we've been programmed differently, right? Different people have been programmed different. We've been exposed to to drastically different things. And every day I get more and more <laughs> drastic examples. I mean, I, I almost wanted to text you this week to give you the story of one of them I had. I have, a, I have friends of, of different income levels, right? And they, they're, they're good people, but it's just things that they consider normal, you know, c depending on who you are, can seem so ridiculous. I had one friend this week and she was talking casually, not trying to gloat at all. She was actually making a joke about a boat that her dad gave to uh, to her brothers, right? She had, she had a couple of brothers, and she said the dad gave it to the brothers, and he, he gave it a funny name. I won't give the name away just in case, you know, once my traces back to who it is I'm talking about, but the dad gave the boat a very funny name, right? And what the dad did, he gave the funny name as a, as a joke on the brothers, and he gifted the brothers a, the boat. He gifted them a yacht. So when you talk about the person who has the money or a person who grew up around a space where people have the, enough money to gift yachts as jokes <laughs> versus the person who grew up not seeing the light bill paid or having to work three jobs to go through college. Those are drastically different experiences. You, you, you've been, you've been, you've, it's, it's, the program is, dra I, I'm trying to find a way to like give how ridiculous it is. The program is drastically different and you're going to go through life and you're going to have different beliefs and attitudes toward money, right? And it's not that one person is good and one person is bad. People get born into different circumstances. What are they going to do? But you really have to, before you go into this personal finance strategy, you really have to do a kind of self-check here and understand the kind of programming that you have. So we ask questions in there like, what, what's the number when somebody says a lot of money? When you know, so I, I just said, well, what do you call a lot of money? Like, I'll start calling numbers. And this is one of the exercises we do in the, in the questions that you talk about in the book. I said, okay, stop me when it sounds like a lot. 10,000, 100,000. 1 million, 100 million. Like, wh what's the number? What number of zeros makes your butt clench a little bit, makes you feel a little, makes you start to sweat? Like, what's the biggest check you've ever actually written? Right? What's the biggest check you've ever actually received? Okay, you've never written a check with so many zeros to where you, like, okay, you know what? I need to get a special check because this can't fit on my little itty bitty checkbook. You, th yeah, the bank gave you the poor person checkbook because they didn't expect that you would ever have enough money to write a big check. Like people, you know, so you, you got to really understand those things and understand the programming that you have. But even more importantly, you have to understand that you can change this programming by exposing yourself to new information, right? You can change that programming, but you first you have to recognize what it is because that's going to impact your your risk appetite for investments, your risk appetite for earning wealth, and it also affects affects your appetite for taking on different opportunities. What do you think you actually deserve? Because the folks out there who are making it happen and having these plush lives and doing all this stuff, they fully believe that they're deserving of these nice things. They don't feel guilty. You, like People think that, that these folks are going around here feeling bad that they're folks who have less than that. No, they're not. Trust me. I'm not saying they're bad people, but trust me, they're not going to sleep. They're not staying up at night worrying about you. You might be worrying about them saying, oh, they're doing this and that, other, they're driving that. They're not worried about you. Right. So you've got to get some of that gumption in you and says, yes, 
I am worthy of having these nice things, not just for having nice things sake, but I'm worthy of having enough capital to where I can unleash that capital in my community to good things, to do good things. I don't only have to be getting a scholarship, I can be starting a scholarship fund. I don't only have to be trying to do, a, what do they call the thing now, a blessing circle? Is that, is that the thing, that's, that's the new thing they're talking about, you come together with some friends and you're doing some money? I don't only need to be doing that, I could be starting my own venture capital firm. I could be the next angel investor in some young person or some young business that I saw out there. I could be Nas buying into things like Robin Hood and that kind of stuff on the ground floor so that I could be making, you know, 100 times X uh, return in a couple years down the road. So you got to really get into that. But it starts with understanding your programming and understanding that you have the power to change it. And that is a skill. Indeed. Okay, so we always talk about being productive and making sure we're maximizing our time. So what are a couple of your favorite productivity tools? All right. So I have been going in on the Google space. I'm sorry if you're not a Google person. This is my thing that I'm, this, this is where I'm at right now. You just got to deal with it. You know? So if you have a Gmail account or anything like that, I, I'm big on I'm maximizing the free tools that are out there. And one of them I think that is underutilized is the Google workspace, like the Google, your Gmail and the calendar and all this stuff, um, especially the calendar. So I've come to a place in my life, Michelle, where I don't remember stuff. I like If, if you're telling me that we're going to meet sometime or if I'm telling you that we are, we're good to go for that and you don't see me looking down at my phone and making that note on my calendar, I am BSing you. I am not planning to show up. <laughs> I, I am. I'm just, it's just it's nonsense. I'm not taking you seriously. But. I've been leveraging the Google Calendar very much uh, over the last uh, over the last couple of years now, and really tapping into the power of it. One from having shared calendars, two and shared calendars where you can actually share. Uh, if you if you have a group of people that you work with all the time, or if you have uh, family stuff going on, not just having your calendar, but having several calendars and they're color coded and different behaviors in there. So I have a thing where as soon as I put an event on my calendar, it has. Uh, some default notifications. You can set the you can set the default notifications that you want to happen on your Google Calendar. So I drop an event on there. I automatically have reminders: uh, one month, one week, uh, two days, one hour, and ten minutes. Those automatically are in there, so I don't I don't miss what's going on. So to, on 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 Saturday at two p.m. I know exactly what I'm going to be doing the following Saturday at 2 p.m. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, because next week I got that. Good. I, I'm keeping that on the radar so I can know what's going on. That's one part of it. Uh, the other part is the ability, the ability uh, depending on what level of Gmail you have here, to actually share your avail availability with folks. So you don't have to share specifically what's going on, but you can you can set at the bottom of the whatever you're putting on your Google Calendar, you can set whether that's free time or busy time. Because you might have something that you're putting on your calendar that is just a reminder that this is happening but it's not something that you're actively involved in. You're not occupied with it. So you can choose whether that needs to show on your calendar as free or busy. Uh, the other thing that you can do inside of that same Google Gmail workspace, I've been using uh, a, a tool in there now. They have two tools. One is called Tasks. This is where it's a little check and a plus sign if you look, if you have any email open. Oh, I need to do this. Well, the, what I used to do before is like, okay, I put it somewhere in a to-do list, and then I have to go back and sift through my inbox trying to find the actual thing. No, you hit task, it actually pulls that email into the to-do. So it's, it's kind of married together. So when you go to say, I want to do this thing, you click and boom, you're back to that email. And the last piece I'll share from it, there's a lot of stuff you can do in there, and Google is not paying me to, to say this stuff. They should. Yeah, they should do that. But the last piece in there is scheduled sending, right? And this is where... Uh, you, used to, you used to have to have a plugin like Bloom, Boomerang to do this, 
But if you're a nine to fiver and you're trying to get things done uh, at odd hours, you work at night, or you just need to do things differently, you can you can actually type the email and program a date and time in the future when you want it to be sent, whether it's the next morning or a week or whatever. Or you can you can also automate these things to be sent on a recurring time. So for example, just yesterday. I knew I need to get some stuff out and off my plate mentally, so I sent out some emails on a Friday, but I know the person in the country that they're in, they're on holiday from uh, from Monday to Wednesday, so I said in an email, hey, just sending you this just in case you get to look at it before, no need to take action. I'm going to put an automated reminder so this pops up in your inbox when you get back in the office next Thursday. So I sent them the email, and I automatically sent them or scheduled to send them a reply, a reminder to that same email, and that's not going to get sent out till next Thursday morning at 10 a.m. after they've already gone through all the other spam. So that's kind of where I'm at with productivity, using that kind of stuff to take the mental load off of my space, off of my head to get some bandwidth so I can keep myself organized. Yeah, I need to use a schedule piece a bit you more. You do. Yeah, I do. I own it. I own it. I own it. <laughs> So what is a prize career lesson that's kept you keeping your stride and your skills recharged? Yeah, so one of the uh, the one I'll share and the first I've heard this in different versions before, but I want to shout out right now my friend Kanika Talver. Uh, she's the author of Career Rehab. Go ahead and get Kanika's book as well. Kanika Talver, and one of the things she talks about, and again, I think she put it in the, mo in the she puts it in several times in her tweets in the funny ways. You know, date your jobs, don't marry it. Right, date your job, don't marry it. Don't don't get so sentimental. You can be committed. You can be passionate about these things, but remember, you, you're dating, right? You don't want to get to the point prematurely where you're married to these jobs because, one, anything could happen to the actual company, as great as you see that it is. You've seen so many giants fall over the years, big and small, companies that we thought would never disappear. It is possible. And more importantly, you want to make sure you're able to keep your options open and see different places where you can add the most value. So in my, the way I would spin that is, you know, don't get married to your clients, right? In my no boss, only clients mindset. Don't get so married to your clients that you think that if this client goes away, this is the end of your business. This is the end of you. This is the end of your income, right? You want to always be looking around to see where else you can add value and see who else will value you, if we can use some, some schmoozy relationship terms here. So that's what it is there. Uh, date your jobs, don't marry them. Well, thank you. Okay, so please share how the listeners and corporations can get in touch with you to work with you. Absolutely. So if anyone's listening, you can always find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. I am at Dallin Vanterpool. That's just my name, D-A-L-A-N-V-A-N-T-E-R-P-O-O-L. And you can also check the website, DallinV.com, if you want to get in touch with me there or if any corporations or persons are trying to reach out to get some services done, whether it's to have a chat with your staff or anything like that, to go over some things we talked about in the book, all that good stuff. We can always make that happen by sending me an email, dallin at dallinvanderpool.com. And you can find me, Michelle Beatty, at careertipper.com or skillsrecharge.com. Please listen and subscribe to the podcast or watch us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, please leave us a five-star review and be sure to share it with a fellow goal getter. Thank you so much for joining us. Dallin, thanks for continuing the Skills Recharge conversation. You were part of season two. You're now part of season three. So this is fantastic. Thank you so much. And just have a fantastic, what did you, what do you say? Have a powerful day? Have a powerful day. That's, that, is, that is the official Dallin Vanderpool tagline. So you, Michelle, Curry Tipper family, have a powerful day.
Yes, listeners, have a powerful day. Thank you.